Hello, and welcome to another instalment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. Today's story takes place among the urchins who scratch out an existence on the streets of Malifaux. Life is hard for these homeless children, and they are often preyed upon by bigger kids or unscrupulous adults. But sometimes, the dark and twisted fairy tales of Malifaux level the playing field by doling out unusual rewards and punishments. I hope you enjoy Luther the Pasha Hare. Luther the Pasha Hare by Graham Stevenson Hogwash! Little Radley blurted, folding his tiny arms. Is so true, rejoined Boyle, his normally ruddy face and especially deep maroon. No, it ain't. It ain't even that much true. Little Radley pressed his thumb and forefinger together in demonstration of how non-existent the truth behind Boyle's claim was. What would you know, Radley? You were never there. Pah! Giant rabbit, he says. Little Radley looked skyward, as if to invite an invisible audience to join in the ridicule of his companion. Ain't no rabbit, it was a hare. Boyle corrected hotly. Little Radley's expression made it obvious he couldn't care less. You made it up. Did not neither, Boyle said. You can ask Grimy Pete and Flutter. They saw him too. I'll do just that. I'll see him and I'll say to him, hey boys, you know Boyle says he saw a giant rabbit. Hare, Boyle corrected again. And they'll say, what now? And I'll say, why, that's right. Boyle saw himself a giant rabbit. And he says you two saw it too. And they'll say, well, he's crazy and a liar, because we never saw nothing like that. It's a hare, Boyle insisted again. And I ain't no liar. Ask anyone. It comes back every year in the spring and eats street kids. I swear it's true. Fella, your tongue's going to swell up and turn yellow from telling all them lies. I ain't lying, Radley. I saw it. Little Radley shook his head emphatically. No, you didn't. I saw it and I ain't lying and if you say another word about it, I'll lick you right here. Boyle threatened, bawling his red fists. Well, you best go ahead and lick me, because I don't believe a word of it, Radley said. Not one word. I'll do it too, Boyle continued, desperation starting to bleed into his tone. I'll do it, so you'd better just watch out. That's for your licking, Radley said contemptuously, spitting into the dirt. You a yellow-mouthed liar, Boyle. The larger boy fizzed and ground his teeth, but he didn't strike his small companion. He wasn't a violent child by nature, and everyone knew little Radley got his name because he was abnormally small and weak for his age, with an outsized head. It just wouldn't seem right to beat up on him when... He couldn't defend himself properly. In saying that, Radley did often skate too close to the edge of what could be tolerated by the other street urchins, and in the wrong company that sort of behaviour was liable to leave you hurt and bleeding in a ditch someplace. A sulky silence descended as Boyle leaned against the fence and scuffed his bare feet savagely into the dust, and little Radley turned to look the other way affecting an air of benign indifference to his companion's distemper. Presently, along came Sonny, 
whose disposition was exactly as you'd expect from a name like that. Hey, fellas, she chirped, giving them a wide, gap-toothed grin. What you doing? Foyle stayed quiet, excavating a hole in the dirt with his toes and keeping his stormy expression lowered. Don't mind him, little Bradley said, hopping down off the fence. With his feet on the ground, the crown of his head barely reached Sonny's chin, and he was three years her senior. He's just sore because I called him out. What for? For being a liar? Bradley said, matter-of-factly. I ain't no liar! Boyle snapped, but didn't raise his head. He was frequently very bashful around Sonny. He is too, Radley continued, undaunted. He says he saw a giant rabbit. Hare, Boyle corrected yet again. I says hare. Where did you see it, Toby? Sonny asked. She was the only one of the group that ignored the big red welt on his forehead and called him by his real name which was probably the reason for his bashfulness. Boyle worked on his excavation for a few seconds while he pondered whether Sonny might be leading him into a trap. Not before last, he said when he'd convinced himself further ridicule wasn't imminent. In the alley, behind the Yule Meat Works. Sonny's round face creased while she thought, Don't hares eat grass and stuff? Nor this one, Boyle said. It ate up Bart Lovetree in one gulp. Down he went. It ate Bart? Sure did. Picked him up and ate him like a cherry. So how come it didn't eat Flutter nor Grimy Pete? Asked little Radley pointedly. How do I know? It sort of hung over him for a while, then gave him something out of a basket and went off down the alley. A basket? It had a basket? Radley's voice was climbing steadily to the heights of incredulity. That's what I said, weren't it? What do you think it gave him, Toby? Asked Sonny, evidently not as challenged by the concept of a giant hare carrying a basket. I couldn't see, but the two of them lit out afterward like they was on fire, that's for sure. Ain't seen neither of them since. Well, that's awful convenient, said Radley dryly. Don't think I'd want to eat grimy Pete either, Sonny commented. Lesson I'd washed him first. The boy was notoriously filthy even for a street urchin. The three of them settled into silence, although a more companionable one than before Sunny had come along. Presently, she started up again. I'm hungry, she said. Little Radley glanced up at the sky, which was turning to burnished copper as the evening drew in. We could go by the Cunningham factory, he suggested. They're usually clearing out the bread ovens around now. Might be a few burnt loaves tossed out. Sonny nodded vigorously. Burnt bread was far better than no bread at all. Why, I bet we get a whole loaf each. I bet we do it, that, agreed Radley, and they fell into step. Boyle followed after, his fists thrust into his ragged pants pockets, jealous of Radley's proximity to Sonny, and unable to budge his wounded pride enough to do anything about it. The Cunningham Bakery was one of dozens in that district of Malifaux, and provided almost exclusively for the poor. The ingredients that went into a Cunningham cob were uninspired, and the resultant bread was of dubious merit, but it was cheap and plentiful, and those were the only things that a starving family could really afford to consider. The best cobs were to be had early in the morning after the flour sacks had been delivered, 
Every sunrise found a long queue at the bakery's gate, waiting for the first trays to be brought out of the ovens. By midday, the best of the ingredients had been used, and the calibre of the bread took a downward turn, as did the price. The queues were just as long, though those waiting in them were decidedly leaner and shabbier, and by evening all that was left of the flour and yeast were the sweepings from the dough room floor. These last offerings were sold in batches, five cobs to a coin mostly, and were bought by the poorest and most desperate of those who still had something to make a purchase with. When the bakery closed its gates at sundown, those who hadn't scrip or good fortune enough to acquire a meal went around to the tip at the back of the factory, where the oven boys dumped the charred detritus from the ovens over the wall. These blackened chunks were squabbled over with all the passion a starving soul could muster, and by midnight there was never so much as a crumb left. By the time the urchins arrived, a sizable portion of the bread had been grabbed, but experience and a sharp eye had taught them that the refuse wasn't always hurled over the wall in the same place, and it paid to linger a distance from the centre of the scrum. Sure enough, they heard crunching feet in the gravel on the far side of the wall, and a second later a shovelful of broken bread flew overhead. Little Radley was especially adept at scavenging bread in the gathering gloom. By the time the adults had realised what was going on, the three of them were hot-footing it back along the alley with hot chunks clenched in their fists, and Little Radley's inverted shirt bulging with cobs as black and misshapen as colbricks. They ran for a long time. Hard experience had taught them to be wary of hungry adults who would pursue them in the hope of wrestling away their prize. It was almost fully dark before they came to a halt in the shadow of a rotting music hall still sporting a few flecks of blue and red paint from some forgotten carnival era. What a hole! Little Radley breathed as they piled the bread on an upturned crate and stood admiring it. I ain't ever seen so much in one place, said Sonny. This was patently untrue, but served to bolster their spirits nonetheless. They had scavenged one whole cob about the size of a squashed coconut, three badly burned halves, and about a dozen fist-sized chunks. The whole cob looked almost supernatural, sitting there brown and pristine among the blackened cast-offs. Reckon that's yours, Boyle said magnanimously, nodding at the cob. You brought back the most. We'll half it in three, Radley said judiciously, all trace of his former scorn evaporated. That way we all get a taste. This was more than agreeable, and all eyes watched as he carefully tore the bread orb into three pieces, handing one to each of his friends. They all tucked in ravenously, pausing frequently to exclaim the merits of this freshly baked wonder around bulging cheeks. Caution is an admirable thing in all walks of life, and doubly so when you live on the edge of the knife like the Malifaux urchins. A moment's relapse is sometimes all it takes for a situation to turn sour, and this is exactly what happened to our feasting protagonists when Red Eddie and his gang came around the corner. Lean and rangy like a pack of dogs, these weren't urchins but rather miniature thugs. There wasn't so much as a trace of starry-eyed innocence left among the lot of them. It had all been beaten or starved out by harsh living on the streets. Red Eddie was the tallest and oldest of the troop, as befitted a leader of adolescence, and his sullen, pinched face was almost hidden beneath a greasy curtain of unkempt hair. His fringe hung to the tip of his nose, 
but failed to mask the spiteful eyes behind. He carried a rusty knife in his boot, being on the upper echelon of street life allowed him the luxury of footwear, and when they weren't thieving or threatening, Eddie's hands worked ceaselessly at each other, picking, rubbing and squeezing with nervous energy until the flesh was raw. One of the many unsavoury rumours about him was that the red on his hands was actually a stain from knifing his father to death. Even the youngest urchins on the street regarded this myth with high scepticism. But there was no doubt that Red Eddie was mean enough to have done the deed. As for his gang, their specifics are not relevant here, save to say they lent sufficient weight and menace to the older boy to ensure any ensuing confrontation was completely one-sided. There was a short scuffle in which Sonny and Boyle received buffets about the head, and little Radley was shoved hard enough to sprawl him full length into the dirt. Ankles were stepped on and shirt fronts grabbed so that there could be no escape while Eddie surveyed the still uneaten spoils. What's this? he said, poking absently at the blackened bits on the crate. Three little rats eating coal, eh? We ain't rats, muttered Radley, but even he was careful to keep his defiance inaudible around Red Eddie. We had pork, didn't we, boys? Eddie gloated. Snatched as a hog right out of Crumb's window. Cooked it over a box fire. Crumb was the butcher with a shop a few streets away. Boyle doubted that they could have run off with an entire hog. He'd seen one gutted and hanging in Crumb's shop weeks before, and it looked bigger than he was. But the thought of hot, crispy pork made his mouth water. A delicacy he'd smelled often enough, but never tasted. You never had no pork? blurted little Radley before he could stop himself. Red Eddie kicked him hard in the stomach, hard enough for the air to burst out of him in a loud squawk. I says we had pork, little rat. Don't you sass me. Radley said nothing, curled into a tight ball. Would you want, Eddie? asked Boyle. We got nothing but that bread there. That ain't bread, snorted the villain. I had bread afore and it weren't all black and crunchy. Despite this criticism, he was lifting the chunks and stuffing them in his pockets. Truth of it is, this is below me. A man has to have standards. Don't take it all, protested Boyle, but there was no conviction in his voice. In truth, if this was the extent of Red Eddie's villainy for the evening, they'd have got off lightly. I'll take as much as I likes to take and you'll keep your trap shut about it, Eddie countered, pushing the last few pieces into his bulging shirt. You don't want to make me reach for my boot, do you? It was no secret that Eddie carried a knife, and there was nothing he liked better than to produce it and threaten the little ones with its rusty, ragged edge. He protested mightily that it was all their own doing, that they'd ragged him and sassed him until he'd had no choice but to reach for it to quieten them. But the sadistic truth was right there in his eyes, that he'd have drawn it anyway just to see their expressions. He sharpened it on a rock every night and made a poor job of it. Any household in the city was like to have a better piece of steel in the kitchen drawer, but Eddie crooned about his ragged weapon like it was a boon from the gods. You best not make me, he was saying, his raw, chafed fingers hovering. You just best not. I ain't making you do nothing, Boyle said, glaring back with as much conviction as he could muster. 
Just don't take it all, is all I says. We ain't eating and that's all we got. He tactfully left out the fact that each of them had wolfed down a cob third seconds before. You've got to mind your betters, boy. Eddie stated, oh, I deserve this bread more than you, which is why I'm taking it. Tiring work being an inspiring example to you, rats, and a man's got to eat. Who's this man you keep talking about? muttered Radley. But unfortunately for him, his comment landed right in a moment of uncommon silence, and his private sarcasm abruptly became very public. Oh, you've gone and done it now, said Eddie, reaching down to his boot with exaggerated grandeur. I told you not to make me, but you done it now. Little Radley watched with equal parts resignation, contempt and fear as the older boy slowly drew the filthy knife from his shoe. It was almost uniformly brown, other than the notched line of silver at the edge where Eddie methodically ground it against a stone every evening. A person was more likely to die of tetanus than any wound something so dull and ugly could inflict. But it was a piece of steel in the hand of a sadistic, impulsive bully, and I suppose that's enough to put a touch of fear in any sensible person. Eddie dawdled the knife between thumb and forefinger, his lips splitting to show teeth almost as brown as a blade. Maybe I'll take an ear to remind you who's in charge around here, or maybe a finger. Don't, Eddie, wailed Sunny, who was at her centre a gentle soul and didn't really understand why people couldn't just get along. Circumstance was cruel enough, without people going out of their way to make things worse. This distressed protesting was precisely the sort of theatrical nutrient that Eddie craved, and he went up a gear, waving his knife in ever-increasing circles and raising his voice. Or maybe I'll leave you a nice scar to remember me by. How do you like that, rat? Little Radley had responded to Sonny's pleading too, but in a different way. A surge of indignation and fury had completely doused his fear, and unfortunately washed away his common sense at the same time. Well, go on then, he said. Eddie looked around at his associates in crime to let the moment hang. Say what? I said do it, little Radley repeated, his voice trembling. You're the man. You drew the knife, do it. Radley, shut your hole, Boyle said sensing that his small companion had badly misjudged his opponent. Go on then, big man, Radley continued recklessly, heaving himself into a sitting position. Go on and do it. You take our bread, you beat us, you wave that thing around like you're the governor general himself. So do it. You got the sand to kill me, or is he just full of hot air? Eddie's flirting hold around the knife's hilt had become a hard grip and the tendons were standing out along the length of his forearm. You want this? He asked, his voice somewhere between concern and a terrible excitement. Yeah, go on and do it. Little Radley struggled to his feet. Eddie's goons had backed away as soon as this odd outburst started. Let me in the eye and do it if you can. What do I got to lose? Radley, Boyle hissed but the damage was already done. Were this any common or garden schoolyard bully, little Radley's bluff would no doubt have worked and forced his tormentor into a blustering retreat. His judgment, however, had failed him, and he could not see what Boyle already knew, that Red Eddie was more than just a product of jealousy or lack of good parenting. 
He was what clever men with spectacles and pipes a century later would label a sociopath, to whom matters of empathy and morality were completely alien. To Eddie, there was no reason in the world why he shouldn't do exactly what this mouthy urchin was daring him to. He took two quick steps and gripped Radley around the throat, pinning him against the brick wall and bringing his knife hand back in preparation for a hard thrust. Boyle tried to lunge forward to help his friend, but was held fast by goons who looked almost as astonished as little Radley himself. It would have ended right then for little Radley, impaled on a rusted blade in a dingy alley in the back end of nowhere by a callous maniac. But for that all-too-common situation in Malifaux, where a dark deed is stayed because it is interrupted by something far, far worse. Little childers said a slow, sibilant voice. Little pink childers. All eyes rolled around to the far end of the alley, where a towering shape moved along the shadows. It slouched its way towards them, moving with an unsteady, lopping gait. It didn't appear to be in any way human. Sweet little childers. It said with a voice like syrup poured over rotted meat. All in a row. Boyle's first instinct was to flee, and so was his second. But Radley was still pinned to the wall with Red Eddie's knife hovering in mid-air, frozen in the act of violence. Oh, so wonderful, fresh and smellsome continued the voice as it drew closer. They could hear it drawing long, whistling breaths through its muzzle, for the shape of the head looked distinctly animalistic. Fragrancy, child flowers. Red Eddie's repertoire of henchmen broke then, shoving past Eddie and Sonny to pelt back along the alley and vanish. The urchins would have done the same, but neither of them could bring themselves to leave little Radley, sandwiched as he was between Red Eddie and some awful thing of the night. The thing loped closer and closer, until finally it crossed a narrow slice of gaslight from the street beyond their alley, and the urchins saw something at once farcical and nightmarish. It was a giant rabbit, or to be more precise, a giant hare, Easily seven feet in height before the massive overarching ears were taken into account and wearing a threadbare tweed waistcoat with tarnished brass buttons. Elsewhere, the giant Lepus was covered in a coarse, mangy fur. Little Radley might have laughed, but for the truly horrific nature of the creature. It trembled steadily as though afflicted with palsy, stank of carrion, and sported a gigantic pair of bulbous, bloodshot, weeping eyes that rolled from urchin to urchin with a feverish glaze reserved for an animal in the final stages of hydrophobia or myxematosis, or perhaps both. Sweet childers, it said as it cast a foul-smelling shadow over them. Night's veil, she draws over us, one and all. And Luther must perform his jebdicatement once again. Yes, he must. Tired Luther is. Tired. 
and so very hungry. The glassy eyes swept the small group, each one of them dumbfounded. Evaluatoring is called for a solemn office. Ancient. Luther must weigh all the souls, all the little child souls. The animal lifted a black hand, ending in talons a full six inches in length, cradling an invisible soul in its palm. He must, he must. Luther is compelled. He must discharge his office. Promise he did. A pus tear oozed down his blunt muzzle, but the urchins were unmoved. A heavy air of violence hung about this creature, and there was not even a fleeting moment of pity to be found among them. There were brownish stains on the filthy waistcoat, and a strong, coppery stink from the hare's hands. The fur looked sodden, and the urchins suspected that, had there been more light in the alley, the hare's hands would not be black but a deep, vital red. Radley became aware by degrees that the hare had something over one arm, a wicker basket at least three feet across, with rusty chicken wire securing the contents, which for the moment lay in shadow. Radley found he wasn't in the least curious. Boyle's story suddenly didn't seem quite so far-fetched. Mister, he tried, clearing his throat. Mister, we ain't done nothing but... Take a little bread what was being thrown away anyhow. Can't we just go? The hare's bulbous head immediately swung his way, and its mad eyes crawled over him, almost a physical sensation. It took a step forward so that it loomed over him, and he found he was staring straight at its belly. For a creature complaining of hunger, its stomach was grossly distended and moving. Radley had a disturbing thought that its last meal might not be dead yet. Tiny, tiny childer, it breathed, a single spot of froth dropping from its muzzle onto Radley's cheek. More years on you than the others, yet you stand the shortest. Luther must wear you most carefully. Before Radley could respond, the enormous hare leaned close and took a deep breath through its nose. It breathed in again and again, eyes half-closed, while it drew up his scent with such force he could feel his hair fluttering. <sighs> Luther gurgled and reeled back, the scent filling his lungs. He bared triangular incisors longer than Radley's forearm and chittered at length before letting the air out in a foul rush. Sweet, brave child, uh, Luther sees it neath those tiny ribs, tastes it in his head. Good soul, good soul. As soon as he said this, the basket under his arm began to shiver and jostle as though a number of terrified things within had abruptly begun to fight to put another occupant between themselves and the basket's mouth. Reward the good, Luther said, almost to himself, as he thrust a hand into the basket. Reward the good, yes, Luther knows. 
he pulled out a rabbit, snowy white and kicking madly. While the urchin stared with incomprehension, Luther stretched the coney between his long arms and twisted. The rabbit's neck went click, and all fighting ceased. Reward, yes, Luther said, handing the dead rabbit to an astonished Bradley, eyes darting from the boy's face to his reward and back again. Nice, yes, it's still warm, tasty, rich, bloody. Little Radley swallowed his nausea. Slow and menacing, Luther swung to face a white-faced Sonny and leaned over her. Ah, the child of flower, he said as he began to draw in deep breaths. Sweetness. Such sweetness, lovelish, fleshy, child. Ah. Sunny was frozen to the spot, sobbing quietly, while Luther sucked in her scent, twin tear tracks leaving pink trails through the grime on her face. At length, the animal exhaled and immediately drew back its chops in a terrifying grin that showed layers of hooked teeth that no hair, enormous or otherwise, ought to have possessed. Such gentlemen, such warmness, Luther exclaimed, reaching down to carefully press a razor talon against Sonny's cheek. Childer, it gives heart to poor Luther to find a soul so shineless, so gleamish, sweet, dear childer. Sonny continued to bubble softly, hiccuping while Luther rummaged in his basket of screaming rabbits. A special one, a treatish one, Luther must find. Reward the good, yes, reward them. He pulled free a particularly plump rabbit whose fur shone like snow. Luther's handprints on its flanks looked shockingly red. With a practiced motion, Luther snapped its neck, squeezing a surprisingly human shriek from the animal in the process, and bestowed this macabre gift on the crying urchin. Yes, so soft this one is, loving pet this one, maybe, eh? He suggested. Pet now, yes? Stroking and singing, yes? Warm this one, cuddlish. Eat later. Thank you, sir. Sonny managed between her sobs, remembering enough manners to attempt a small curtsy while clutching the dead rabbit to her breast. Luther turned to face Boyle, who had shrunk back against the alley wall, his heart hammering. Wordlessly, the hare leaned over him and snorted a long, deep inhalation, while the urchin tensed to flee. Things had gone too well for too long. This creature wasn't terrifying and blood-soaked for nothing, and Boyle suspected he was about to find out why. Instead, the hare made a non-committal grunt that sounded like good enough, pulled a screaming rabbit from the basket, killed it, and shoved it in Boyle's face. Four pairs of eyes swiveled to Red Eddie. Astonishingly, the boy didn't look all that frightened. Smell me now, he said. And then I'll have one of them rabbits you got, a big one, 
I'll have me some rabbit stew I can mop up with my bread. This last comment seemed aimed at the urchins, even though Eddie's gaze never left the huge hairs. Child, Luther intoned, looming over the boy until he almost vanished in the shadow. Dark, child, weigh you, Luther, must justice you. Go on then, I want the biggest rabbit you've got. Luther drew in a breath, a thin, whistling, keening breath unlike the others, and the urchins could see the hackles at the base of his neck begin to bristle. Black childer, Luther said slowly, still hanging over the boy. Black and rotted, Luther smells it. Cruelish, vicious. So, Red Eddie was obstinate to the last. Give me my rabbit. Oh, no, Luther murmured, somehow seeming to grow taller still. Not for this one. His big head split as his muzzle opened. The others heard a click as his jaw dislocated like a snake and gaped wider and wider opening a wet red cave rimmed with barbed teeth. Eddie finally seemed to realise what was about to happen and bolted, or at least tried to. Luther's long, supple arms snatched him into the air before he could take a step, and with a single motion rammed the boy into his mouth. His throat distended as he gulped, and like a furry python, the huge hair swallowed the boy in a half-dozen muscular lurches. The urchins watched with a confused mixture of horror, fascination and relief as their arch-enemy joined the already sizable bulge in Luther's abdomen. The hare's jaws clicked shut, and he licked his jaw with a long, black tongue. Run along now, little childers, he said tonelessly. His head turned a fraction so that one bulging red eye danced across them perhaps contemplating a further urchin canopy. Luther is always so hungry. So hungry. Reward the good, yes. But Luther grows weak. Run along now. Temptation is here. The urchins didn't need a second warning. In a heartbeat, they were down the alley and away, legs pumping for all they were worth, rabbit prizes flopping and slapping madly. In the end, it turned out that rabbit tasted far better than burned bread. Hours and miles later, Luther crouched in his burrow. With the stone in place, the entrance was hidden from view, and he could tend his brood. He hunched over, retching softly and steadily, until the massive bulge in his stomach shifted. The flexible snake jaw opened once more, and he disgorged his charges out onto the dirt. One after another, bulbous, rubbery eggs surged from his gaping mouth, landing with wet slaps. There was still a suggestion of a child in each, an amorphous figure squirming and twitching within the veiny, membranous skin. Exhausted and starved once again, Luther nudged the eggs to the base of a far larger pile. The skins would harden, and they would shrink, he knew. In the weeks and months to come, they would slowly dry out until they formed a hard and brittle shell, not much larger than a melon. 
It was cruel to rob poor Luther of his meal, he felt. But it was his curse and his burden. It was his task. It would take a full year for them to transform completely, during which time he could sleep down here in the cool earth and forget his hunger. By the time Luther's season had come round again, the eggs would be beginning to hatch. A fresh crop of soft white rabbits would emerge. Rewards for the good childers. That's it for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure. <laughs>